0: The Ego and His Own, by Max Stirner, Continued, Cassette 8, Side 1. If it is said that competition throws everything open to all, the expression is not accurate, and it is better put thus. Competition makes everything purchasable. In abandoning it to them, competition leaves it to their appraisal or their estimation and demands a price for it. But the would-be buyers mostly lack the means to make themselves buyers. They have no money. For money, then, the purchasable things are indeed to be had. For money, everything is to be had. But it is exactly money that is lacking. Where is one to get money, this current or circulating property? Know, then, you have as much money as you have might, for you count for as much as you make yourself count for. One pays not with money, of which there may come a lack, but with his competence, by which alone we are competent for one is proprietor only so far as the arm of our power reaches. Veitling has thought out a new means of payment, work. But the true means of payment remains, as always, competence. With what you have within your competence, you pay. Therefore, think on the enlargement of your competence. This being admitted, they are nevertheless right on hand again with the motto, To each according to his competence. Who is to give to me according to my competence? Society? Then I should have to put up with its estimation. Rather, I shall take according to my competence. All belongs to all. This proposition springs from the same unsubstantial theory. To each belongs only what he is competent for. If I say, The world belongs to me, properly that too is empty talk, which has a meaning only in so far as I respect no alien property but to me belongs only as much as I am competent for, or have within my competence. One is not worthy to have what one, through weakness, lets be taken from him. One is not worthy of it because one is not capable of it. They raise a mighty uproar over the wrong of a thousand years, which is being committed by the rich against the poor, as if the rich were to blame for poverty, and the poor were not in like manner responsible for riches. IS THERE ANOTHER DIFFERENCE BETWEEN THE TWO THAN THAT OF COMPETENCE AND INCOMPETENCE, OF THE COMPETENT AND INCOMPETENT? WHEREIN, PRAY, DOES THE CRIME OF THE RICH CONSIST? IN THEIR HARD-HEARTEDNESS. BUT WHO THEN HAVE MAINTAINED THE POOR? WHO HAVE CARED FOR THEIR NOURISHMENT? WHO HAVE GIVEN ALMS, THOSE ALMS THAT HAVE EVEN THEIR NAME FROM MERCY? HAVE NOT THE RICH BEEN MERCIFUL AT ALL TIMES? Are they not to this day tender-hearted as poor taxes, hospitals, foundations of all sorts, etc. approve? But all this does not satisfy you. Doubtless, then, they are to share with the poor. Now you are demanding that they shall abolish poverty. Aside from the fact that there might be hardly one among you who would act so, and that this one would be a fool for it, do ask yourselves, why should the rich let go their fleeces and give up themselves, thereby pursuing the advantage of the poor rather than their own? You, who have your taller daily, are rich above thousands who live on four Groschen. Is it for your interest to share with the thousands, or is it not rather for theirs?' With competition is connected less the intention to do the thing best than the intention to make it as profitable, as productive as possible. Hence, people study to get into the civil service, pot-boiling study, study cringing and flattery, routine and acquaintance with business, work for appearance. Hence, while it is apparently a matter of doing good service, in truth only a good business and earning of money are looked out for the job is done only ostensibly for the job's sake but in fact on account of the gain that it yields one would indeed prefer not to be censor but one wants to be advanced one would like to judge administer etc according to his best convictions but one is afraid of transference or even dismissal one must above all things live thus these goings-on are a fight for dear life and in gradation upward for more or less of a good living And yet, withal, their whole round of toil and care brings in, for most, only bitter life and bitter poverty, all the bitter painstaking for this. Restless acquisition does not let us take breath, take a calm enjoyment. We do not get the comfort of our possessions. But the organization of labor touches only such labors as others can do for us, slaughtering, tillage, and the like. The rest remain egoistic, because no one can in your stead elaborate your musical compositions, carry out your projects of painting, etc. Nobody can replace Raphael's labors. The latter are labors of a unique person, which only he is competent to achieve, while the former deserve to be called human, since what is anybody's own in them is of slight account, and almost any man can be trained to it. Now, as society can regard only labors for the common benefit, human labors, he who does anything unique remains without its care. Nay, he may find himself disturbed by its intervention. The unique person will work himself forth out of society all right, but society brings forth no unique person. Hence it is at any rate helpful that we come to an agreement about human labors, that they may not, as under competition, claim all our time and toil, So far, communism will bear its fruits. For before the dominion of the commonalty, even that for which all men are qualified, or can be qualified, was tied up to a few and withheld from the rest. It was a privilege. To the commonalty, it looked equitable to leave free all that seemed to exist for every man. But because left free, it was yet given to no one, but rather left to each to be got hold of by his human power. By this the mind was turned to the acquisition of the human, which henceforth beckoned to everyone, and there arose a movement which one hears so loudly bemoaned under the name of materialism. Communism seeks to check its course, spreading the belief that the human is not worth so much discomfort, and with sensible arrangements could be gained without the great expense of time and powers which has hitherto seemed requisite. But for whom is time to be gained? FOR WHAT DOES MAN REQUIRE MORE TIME THAN IS NECESSARY TO REFRESH HIS wearied POWERS OF LABOR? HERE COMMUNISM IS SILENT. FOR WHAT? TO TAKE COMFORT IN HIMSELF AS THE UNIQUE, AFTER HE HAS DONE HIS PART AS MAN. IN THE FIRST JOY OVER BEING ALLOWED TO STRETCH OUT THEIR HANDS TOWARD EVERYTHING HUMAN, PEOPLE FORGOT TO WANT ANYTHING ELSE, AND THEY COMPETED AWAY VIGOROUSLY, AS IF THE POSSESSION OF THE HUMAN WERE THE GOAL OF ALL OUR WISHES but they have run themselves tired and are gradually noticing that possession does not give happiness. Therefore, they are thinking of obtaining the necessary by an easier bargain and spending on it only so much time and toil as its indispensableness exacts. Riches fall in price, and contented poverty, the carefree ragamuffin, becomes the seductive ideal. Should such human activities that everyone is confident of his capacity for be highly salaried and sought for with toil and expenditure of all life forces? Even in the everyday form of speech, if I were minister, or even the, then it should go quite otherwise, that confidence expresses itself, that one holds himself capable of playing the part of such a dignitary. One does get a perception that to things of this sort there belongs not uniqueness, but only a culture which is attainable even if not exactly by all, at any rate by many, that for such a thing one need only be an ordinary man. If we assume that as order belongs to the essence of the state, so subordination too is founded in its nature, then we see that the subordinates, or those who have received preferment, disproportionately overcharge and overreach those who are put in the lower ranks. But the latter take heart, first from the socialist standpoint, but certainly with egoistic consciousness later, of which we will therefore at once give their speech some coloring for the question, by what then is your property secure, you creatures of preferment? And give themselves the answer, by our refraining from interference, and so by our protection. And what do you give us for it? kicks and disdain you give to the common people, police supervision, and a catechism with the chief sentence, respect what is not yours, what belongs to others, respect others and especially your superiors. But we reply, if you want our respect, buy it for a price agreeable to us. We will leave you your property if you give a due equivalent for this leaving. Really, what equivalent does the general in time of peace give for the many thousands of his yearly income, another for the sheer hundred thousands and millions yearly? What equivalent do you give for our chewing potatoes and looking calmly on while you swallow oysters? Only buy the oysters of us as dear as we have to buy the potatoes of you, then you may go on eating them. Or do you suppose the oysters do not belong to us as much as to you? You will make an outcry over violence if we reach out our hands and help consume them, and you are right. Without violence we do not get them, as you no less have them by doing violence to us. But take the oysters, and have done with it, and let us consider our nearer property, labor, for the other is only possession. We distress ourselves twelve hours in the sweat of our face, and you offer us a few groschen for it, then take the like for your labor too. Are you not willing?" You fancy that our labor is richly repaid with that wage, while yours, on the other hand, is worth a wage of many thousands. But if you did not rate yours so high and gave us a better chance to realize value from ours, then we might well, if the case demanded it, bring to pass still more important things than you do for the many thousand dollars. And if you got only such wages as we, you would soon grow more industrious in order to receive more. But if you render any service that seems to us worth ten and a hundred times more than our own labor, why then, you shall get a hundred times more for it, too. We, on the other hand, think also to produce for you things for which you will requite us more highly than with the ordinary day's wages. We shall be willing to get along with each other all right, if only we have first agreed on this, that neither any longer needs to present anything to the other." Then we may perhaps actually go so far as to pay even the cripples and sick and old an appropriate price for not parting from us by hunger and want. For, if we want them to live, it is fitting also that we purchase the fulfillment of our will. I say purchase, and therefore do not mean a wretched alms. For their life is the property even of those who cannot work. If we, no matter for what reason, want them not to withdraw this life from us, we can mean to bring this to pass only by purchase. Nay, we shall, perhaps, maybe because we like to have friendly faces about us, even want a life of comfort for them. In short, we want nothing presented by you, but neither will we present you with anything. For centuries we have handed alms to you from good-hearted stupidity, have doled out the might of the poor, and given to the masters the things that are not the masters. Now just open your wallet, for henceforth our ware rises in price quite enormously. We do not want to take from you anything, anything at all, only you are to pay better for what you want to have. What then have you? I have an estate of a thousand acres, and I am your plowman, and will henceforth attend to your fields only for one dollar a day wages. Then I'll take another. You won't find any, for we plowmen are no longer doing otherwise, and if one puts in an appearance who takes less, then let him beware of us." There is the housemaid. She, too, is now demanding as much, and you will no longer find one below this price. Why, then, it is all over with me. Not so fast. You will doubtless take in as much as we, and if it should not be so, we will take off so much that you shall have wherewith to live like us. But I am accustomed to live better. We have nothing against that, but it is not our lookout. If you can clear more, go ahead. Are we to hire out under rates that you may have a good living?" The rich man always puts off the poor with the words, What does your want concern me? See to it how you make your way through the world, and that is your affair, not mine. Well, let us let it be our affair, then, and let us not let the means that we have to realize value from ourselves be pilfered from us by the rich. But you uncultured people really do not need so much. Well, we are taking somewhat more in order that, for it, we may procure the culture that we perhaps need. But if you thus bring down the rich, who is then to support the arts and sciences hereafter? Oh, well, we must make it up by numbers. We club together. That gives a nice little sum. Besides, you rich men now buy only the most tasteless books and the most lamentable Madonnas or a pair of lively dancers' legs. Oh, ill-starred equality! No, my good old sir, nothing of equality. We only want to count for what we are worth. And if you are worth more, you shall count for more right along. We only want to be worth our price and think to show ourselves worth the price that you will pay. Is the state likely to be able to awaken so secure a temper and so forceful a self-consciousness in the menial? Can it make man feel himself? Nay, may it even do so much as set this goal for itself. Can it want the individual to recognize his value and realize this value from himself? Let us keep the parts of the double question separate, and see first whether the state can bring about such a thing. As the unanimity of the plowman is required, only this unanimity can bring it to pass, and a state law would be evaded in a thousand ways by competition and in secret. But can the state bear with it? The state cannot possibly bear with people suffering coercion from another than it. It could not, therefore, admit the self-help of the unanimous plowman against those who want to engage for lower wages. Suppose, however, that the state made the law, and all the plowmen were in accord with it. Could the state bear with it then? In the isolated case, yes. But the isolated case is more than that. It is a case of principle. The question therein is of the whole range of the ego's self-realization of value from himself, and therefore also of his self-consciousness against the state. So far, the communists keep company. But as self-realization of value from self necessarily directs itself against the state, so it does against society too, and therewith reaches out beyond the commune and the communistic, out of egoism. Communism makes the maxim of the commonalty, that everyone is a possessor, proprietor, into an irrefragable truth, into a reality, since the anxiety about obtaining now ceases and everyone has, from the start, what he requires. In his labor force, he has his competence, and if he makes no use of it, that is his fault. The grasping and hounding is at an end, and no competition is left, as so often now without fruit, because with every stroke of labor, an adequate supply of the needful is brought into the house. Now for the first time, one is a real possessor, because what one has in his labor force can no longer escape from him, as it was continually threatening to do under the system of competition. One is a carefree and assured possessor, and one is this precisely by seeking his competence no longer in a ware but in his own labor, his competence for labor, and therefore by being a ragamuffin, a man of only ideal wealth. I, however, cannot content myself with the little that I scrape up by my competence for labor, because my competence does not consist merely in my labor." By labor, I can perform the official functions of a president, a minister, etc. These offices demand only a general culture. To wit, such a culture as is generally attainable. For general culture is not merely that which everyone has attained, but broadly that which everyone can attain, and therefore every special culture, medical, military, philological, of which no cultivated man believes that they surpass his powers or, broadly, only a skill, possible to all. But even if these offices may vest in everyone, yet it is only the individual's unique force, peculiar to him alone, that gives them, so to speak, life and significance. That he does not manage his office like an ordinary man, but puts in the competence of his uniqueness, this he is not yet paid for when he is paid only in general as an official or a minister. If he has done it so as to earn your thanks, and you wish to retain this thankworthy force of the unique one, you must not pay him like a mere man who performed only what was human, but as one who accomplishes what is unique. Do the like with your labor. Do. There cannot be a general schedule price fixed for my uniqueness, as there can for what I do as man. Only for the latter can a schedule price be set. Go right on, then, setting up a general appraisal for human labors, but do not deprive your uniqueness of its dessert. Human or general needs can be satisfied through society. For satisfaction of unique needs, you must do some seeking. A friend and a friendly service, or even an individual's service, society cannot procure you. And yet you will every moment be in need of such a service, and on the slightest occasions require somebody who is helpful to you. Therefore do not rely on society, but see to it that you have the wherewithal to purchase the fulfillment of your wishes. Whether money is to be retained among egoists? To the old stamp an inherited possession adheres. If you no longer let yourselves be paid with it, it is ruined. If you do nothing for this money, it loses all power. Cancel the inheritance, and you have broken off the executor's court seal. FOR NOW EVERYTHING IS AN INHERITANCE, WHETHER IT BE ALREADY INHERITED, OR AWAIT ITS HEIR. IF IT IS YOURS, WHEREFORE DO YOU LET IT BE SEALED UP FROM YOU? WHY DO YOU RESPECT THE SEAL? BUT WHY SHOULD YOU NOT CREATE A NEW MONEY? DO YOU THEN ANNIHILATE THE ware IN TAKING FROM IT THE HEREDITARY STAMP? NOW MONEY IS A ware AND AN ESSENTIAL MEANS OR COMPETENCE, FOR IT PROTECTS AGAINST THE OssIFICATION OF RESOURCES, KEEPS THEM IN FLUX, AND BRINGS TO PASS THEIR EXCHANGE. If you know a better medium of exchange, go ahead. Yet it will be a money again. It is not the money that does you damage, but your incompetence to take it. Let your competence take effect. Collect yourselves, and there will be no lack of money, of your money, the money of your stamp. But working I do not call letting your competence take effect. Those who are only looking for work and willing to work hard are preparing for their own selves the infallible upshot. To be out of work. Good and bad luck depend on money. It is a power in the bourgeois period for this reason that it is only wooed on all hands like a girl, indissolubly wedded by nobody. All the romance and chivalry of wooing for a dear object come to life again in competition. Money, an object of longing, is carried off by the bold knights of industry. He who has luck takes home the bride. The ragamuffin has luck. He takes her into his household, society, and destroys the virgin. In his house, she is no longer bride, but wife, and with her virginity, her family name is also lost. As housewife, the maiden money is called labor, for labor is her husband's name. She is a possession of her husband's. To bring this figure to an end, the child of labor and money is again a girl, an unwedded one, and therefore money, but with the certain descent from labor, her father. The form of the face, the effigy, bears another stamp. Finally, as regards competition once more, it has a continued existence by this very means, that all do not attend to their affair and come to an understanding with each other about it. Bread is a need of all the inhabitants of a city. Therefore, they might easily agree on setting up a public bakery. Instead of this, they leave the furnishing of the needful to the competing bakers just so meat to the butchers, wine to wine dealers, etc. Abolishing competition is not equivalent to favoring the guild. The difference is this. In the guild, baking, etc., is the affair of the guild brothers. In competition, the affair of chance competitors. In the union, of those who require baked goods, and therefore my affair, yours, the affair of neither the guildic nor the concessionary baker, but the affair of the united." If I do not trouble myself about my affair, I must be content with what it pleases others to vouchsafe me. To have bread is my affair, my wish and desire, and yet people leave that to the bakers, and hope at most to obtain through their wrangling, their getting ahead of each other, their rivalry, in short, their competition, an advantage which one could not count on in the case of the Guild Brothers, who were lodged entirely and alone in the proprietorship of the baking franchise. What every one requires, every one should also take a hand in procuring and producing. It is his affair, his property, not the property of the gildic or concessionary master. Let us look back once more. The world belongs to the children of the world, the children of men. It is no longer God's world, but man's. As much as every man can procure of it, let him call his. Only the true man, the state, human society, or mankind, will look to it that each shall make nothing else his own than what he appropriates as man, in human fashion. Unhuman appropriation is that which is not consented to by man, that is, it is a criminal appropriation, as the human, vice versa, is a rightful one, acquired in the way of law. So they talk since the revolution. But my property is not a thing, since this has an existence independent of me, Only my might is my own, not this tree, but my might or control over it is what is mine. Now, how is this might perversely expressed? They say I have a right to this tree, or it is my rightful property, so I have earned it by might. That the might must last in order that the tree may also be held, or better, that the might is not a thing existing of itself, but has existence solely in the mighty ego, in me the mighty, is forgotten. Might, like other of my qualities, humanity, majesty, etc., is exalted to something existing of itself, so that it still exists long after it has ceased to be my might. Thus transformed into a ghost, might is right. This eternalized might is not extinguished even with my death, but is transferred to bequeathed. Things now really belong not to me, but to right. On the other side, this is nothing but a hallucination of vision. For the individual's might becomes permanent and a right only by others joining their might with his. The delusion consists in their believing that they cannot withdraw their might. The same phenomenon over again. Might is separated from me. I cannot take back the might that I gave to the possessor. One has granted power of attorney, has given away his power, has renounced coming to a better mind. The proprietor can give up his might and his right to a thing by giving the thing away, squandering it, and the like. And we should not be able likewise to let go the might that we lend to him. The rightful man, the just, desires to call nothing his own that he does not have rightly or have the right to, and therefore only legitimate property. Now who is to be judge, and a judge his right to him? At last, surely, man, with a capital M, who imparts to him the rights of man. Then he can say, in an infinitely broader sense than Terence, the human is my property. However he may go about it, so long as he occupies this standpoint, he cannot get clear of a judge. And in our time the multifarious judges that had been selected have set themselves against each other in two persons at deadly enmity, to wit, in God and man. The one party appeals to divine right, the other to human right, or the rights of man. So much is clear that in neither case does the individual do the entitling himself. Just pick me out an action today that would not be a violation of right. Every moment, the rights of man are trampled underfoot by one side, while their opponents cannot open their mouth without uttering a blasphemy against divine right. Given alms, you mock at a right of man, because the relation of beggar and benefactor is an inhuman relation. Utter a doubt, you sin against a divine right. Eat dry bread with contentment, you violate the right of man by your equanimity. Eat it with discontent, you revile divine right by your repining. There is not one among you who does not commit a crime at every moment. Your speeches are crimes, and every hindrance to your freedom of speech is no less a crime. You are criminals altogether. Yet you are so only in that you all stand on the ground of right, in that you do not even know and understand how to value the fact that you are criminals. Inviolable or sacred property has grown on this very ground. It is a juridical concept. A dog sees the bone in another's power, and stands off only if it feels itself too weak. But man respects the other's right to his bone. The latter action, therefore, ranks as human, the former as brutal or egoistic. And as here, so in general, it is called human when one sees in everything something spiritual, here right, makes everything a ghost, and takes his attitude toward it as toward a ghost, which one can indeed scare away at its appearance, but cannot kill. It is human to look at what is individual not as individual, but as a generality. In nature as such, I no longer respect anything, but know myself to be entitled to everything against it. In the tree in that garden, on the other hand, I must respect alienness. They say, in one-sided fashion, property. I must keep my hand off it. This comes to an end only when I can indeed leave that tree to another as I leave my stick, etc., to another, but do not in advance regard it as alien to me, sacred. Rather, I make to myself no crime of felling it, if I will, and it remains my property, however long as I resign it to others. It is and remains mine. In the banker's fortune, I as little see anything alien as Napoleon did in the territories of kings. We have no dread of conquering it, and we look about us also for the means thereto. We strip off from it, therefore, the spirit of alienness, of which we had been afraid. Therefore it is necessary that I do not lay claim to anything more as man, but to everything as I, this I, and accordingly to nothing human, but to mine, that is, nothing that pertains to me as man, but what I will, and because I will it. Rightful or legitimate property of another will be only that which you are content to recognize as such. If your content ceases, then this property has lost legitimacy for you, and you will laugh at absolute right to it. Besides the hitherto discussed property in the limited sense, there is held up to our reverent heart another property against we are far less to sin. This property consists in spiritual goods, in the sanctuary of the inner nature, What a man holds sacred, no other is to jibe at, because, untrue as it may be, and zealously as one may, in loving and modest wise, seek to convince of a true sanctity the man who adheres to it and believes in it, yet the sacred itself is always to be honored in it. The mistaken man does believe in the sacred, even though in an incorrect essence of it, and so his belief in the sacred must at least be respected. In ruder times than ours, it was customary to demand a particular faith and devotion to a particular sacred essence, and they did not take the gentlest way with those who believed otherwise. Since, however, freedom of belief spread itself more and more abroad, the jealous God and sole Lord gradually melted into a pretty general supreme being, and it satisfied humane tolerance if only everyone revered something sacred. Reduced to the most human expression, this sacred essence is man himself, and the human. With the deceptive semblance as if the human were altogether our own, and free from all the otherworldliness with which the divine is tainted, yes, as if man with a capital M were as much as I or you, there may arise even the proud fancy that the talk is no longer of a sacred essence, and that we now feel ourselves everywhere at home and no longer in the uncanny, in the sacred, and in sacred awe. In the ecstasy over man discovered at last, the egoistic cry of pain passes unheard, and the spook that has become so intimate is taken for our true ego. But humanus is the saint's name, see Goethe, and the humane is only the most clarified sanctity. The egoist makes the reverse declaration. For this precise reason, because you hold something sacred, I jibe at you, and even if I respected everything in you, your sanctuary is precisely what I should not respect. With these opposed views, there must also be assumed a contradictory relation to spiritual goods. The egoist insults them. The religious man, everyone who puts his essence above himself, must consistently protect them. But what kind of spiritual goods are to be protected, and what left unprotected, depends entirely on the concept that one forms of the Supreme Being, And he who fears God, for example, has more to shelter than he, the liberal, who fears man with a capital M. In spiritual goods, we are, in distinction from the sensuous, injured in a spiritual way, and the sin against them consists in a direct desecration, while against the sensuous, a purloining or alienation takes place. The goods themselves are robbed of value and of consecration, not merely taken away the sacred is immediately compromised. With the word irreverence, or flippancy, is designated everything that can be committed as crime against spiritual goods, against everything that is sacred for us, and scoffing, reviling, contempt, doubt, and the like are only different shades of criminal flippancy. That desecration can be practiced in the most manifold way is here to be passed over and only that desecration is to be preferentially mentioned, which threatens the sacred with danger through an unrestricted press. As long as respect is demanded even for one spiritual essence, speech and the press must be enthralled in the name of this essence. For just so long the egoist might trespass against it by his utterances, from which thing he must be hindered by due punishment at least, if one does not prefer to take up the more correct means against it, the preventive use of police authority, such as censorship. What a sighing for liberty of the press. What then is the press to be liberated from? Surely from a dependence, a belonging, and a liability to service. But to liberate himself from that is everyone's affair. And it may with safety be assumed that when you have delivered yourself from liability to service, that which you compose and write will also belong to you as your own, instead of having been thought and indicted in the service of some power. What can a believer in Christ say and have printed that should be freer from that belief in Christ than he himself is? If I cannot or may not write something, perhaps the primary fault lies with me little as this seems to hit the point so near is the application nevertheless to be found by a press law i draw a boundary for my publications or let one be drawn beyond which wrong and its punishment follows i myself limit myself if the press was to be free nothing would be so important as precisely its liberation from every coercion that could be put on it in the name of a law and that it might come to that I, my own self, should have to have absolved myself from obedience to the law. Certainly, the absolute liberty of the press is like every absolute liberty, a non-entity. The press can become free from full many a thing, but always only from what I, too, am free from. If we make ourselves free from the sacred, if we have become graceless and lawless, our words, too, will become so. As little as we can be declared clear of every coercion in the world, so little can our writing be withdrawn from it. But as free as we are, so free we can make it too. It must therefore become our own, instead of, as hitherto, serving a spook. People do not yet know what they mean by their cry for liberty of the press. What they ostensibly ask is that the state shall set the press free, But what they are really after, without knowing it themselves, is that the press become free from the state, or clear of the state. The former is a petition to the state, the latter an insurrection against the state. As a petition for right, even as a serious demanding of the right of liberty of the press, it presupposes the state as the giver, and can hope only for a present, a permission, a chartering. Possible, no doubt, that a state acts so senselessly as to grant the demanded present, but you may bet everything that those who receive the present will not know how to use it, so long as they regard the state as a truth. They will not trespass against this sacred thing, and will call for a penal press law against everyone who would be willing to dare this. In a word, the press does not become free from what I am not free from. Do I perhaps hereby show myself an opponent of the liberty of the press? On the contrary, I only assert that one will never get it if one wants only it, the liberty of the press, if one sets out only for an unrestricted permission. Only beg right along for this permission. You may wait forever for it, for there is no one in the world who could give it to you. As long as you want to have yourselves entitled to the use of the press by a permission, you live in vain hope and complaint nonsense. Why, you yourself, who harbor such thoughts as stand in your book, can unfortunately bring them to publicity only through a lucky chance or by stealth. Nevertheless, you will inveigh against one's pressing and importuning his own state till it gives the refused permission to print. But an author thus addressed would perhaps, for the impudence of such people goes far, give the following reply. Consider well what you say." What then do I do to procure myself liberty of the press for my book? Do I ask for permission, or do I not rather, without any question of legality, seek a favorable occasion and grasp it in complete recklessness of the state and its wishes? I, the terrifying word must be uttered, I cheat the state. You unconsciously do the same. From your tribunes you talk it into the idea that it must give up its sanctity and inviolability, It must lay itself bare to the attacks of writers, without needing on that account to fear danger. But you are imposing on it, for its existence is done for as soon as it loses its unapproachableness. To you, indeed, it might well accord liberty of writing, as England has done. You are believers in the state, and incapable of writing against the state, however much you would like to reform it and remedy its defects. But what if opponents of the state availed themselves of free utterance and stormed out against church, state, morals, and everything sacred with inexorable reasons? You would then be the first in terrible agonies to call into life the September laws. Too late would you then rue the stupidity that earlier made you so ready to fool and palaver into compliance the state or the government of the state. But I prove by my act only two things. This, for one, that the liberty of the press is always bound to favorable opportunities, and accordingly will never be an absolute liberty. But secondly this, that he who would enjoy it must seek out, and if possible create the favorable opportunity, availing himself of his own advantage against the state, and counting himself and his will more than the state and every superior power. Not in the state, but only against it, can the liberty of the press be carried through, If it is to be established, it is to be obtained not as the consequence of a petition, but as the work of an insurrection. Every petition and every motion for liberty of the press is already an insurrection, be it conscious or unconscious, a thing which Philistine halfness alone will not and cannot confess to itself, until, with a shrinking shudder, it shall see it clearly and irrefutably by the outcome." For the requested liberty of the press has indeed a friendly and well-meaning face at the beginning, as it is not in the least minded ever to let the insolence of the press come into vogue. But little by little its heart grows more hardened, and the inference flatters its way in that really a liberty is not a liberty if it stands in the service of the state, of morals, or of the law. A liberty indeed from the coercion of censorship, it is yet not a liberty from the coercion of law. The press, once seized by the lust for liberty, always wants to grow freer, till at last, the writer says to himself, really, I am not wholly free till I ask about nothing, and writing is free only when it is my own, dictated to me by no power or authority, by no faith, no dread. The press must not be free, that is too little, it must be mine, ownness of the press, or property in the press, that is what I will take why liberty of the press is only permission of the press, and the state never will or can voluntarily permit me to grind it to nothingness by the press. Let us now, in conclusion, bettering the above language, which is still vague, owing to the phrase liberty of the press, rather put it thus. Liberty of the press, the liberal's loud demand, is assuredly possible in the state. Yes, it is possible only in the state, because it is a permission, and consequently the permitter, the state, must not be lacking. But as permission it has its limit in this very state, which surely should not in reason permit more than is compatible with itself and its welfare. The state fixes for it this limit as the law of its existence and of its extension. That one state brooks more than another is only a quantitative distinction, which alone nevertheless lies at the heart of the political liberals. They want in Germany, for example, only a more extended, broader accordance of free utterance. The liberty of the press which is sought for is an affair of the people's, and before the people, the state, possesses it, I may make no use of it. From the standpoint of property in the press, the situation is different. Let my people, if they will, go without liberty of free press. I will manage to print by force or ruse. I get my permission to print only from myself and my strength. If the press is my own, I as little need a permission of the state for employing it, as I seek that permission in order to blow my nose. The press is my property from the moment when nothing is more to me than myself. For from this moment, state, church, people, society, and the like, cease, because they have to thank for their existence only the disrespect that I have for myself. And with the vanishing of this undervaluation, they themselves are extinguished, They exist only when they exist above me, exist only as powers and power holders. Or can you imagine a state whose citizens one and all think nothing of it? It would be as certainly a dream, an existence in seeming, as united Germany. The press is my own as soon as I myself am my own, a self-owned man. To the egoist belongs the world, because he belongs to no power of the world. With this, my press might still be very unfree, as at this moment, but the world is large, and one helps himself as well as he can. If I were willing to abate from the property of my press, I could easily attain the point where I might everywhere have as much printed as my fingers produced. But as I want to assert my property, I must necessarily swindle my enemies. Would you not accept their permission if it were given you? Certainly, with joy." For their permission would be to me a proof that I had fooled them and started them on the road to ruin. I am not concerned for their permission, but so much the more for their folly and their overthrow. I do not sue for their permission as if I flattered myself, like the political liberals, that we both, they and I, could make out peaceably alongside and with each other, yes, probably raise and prop each other, but I sue for it in order to make them bleed to death by it, that the permitters themselves may cease at last. I act as a conscious enemy, overreaching them and utilizing their heedlessness. The press is mine when I recognize outside myself no judge whatever over its utilization, when my writing is no longer determined by morality or religion or respect for the state laws or the like, but by me and my egoism. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette.